If you ever watch sport, you'll know all about the danger of celebrating too early. Just a few weeks ago, the England rugby team were beating Scotland 31-0. It's a very convenient example for me to be able to use this morning. England were winning 31-0 after 31 minutes, if I remember that rightly. There was absolutely no chance Scotland could come back from that deficit. At least plenty of England fans thought that. They turned off their TVs, took the dog for a walk. They knew England had won. Apparently, the England team thought they'd already won. But no one had told Scotland that. And they came back to take the lead in the game. Now, England just managed to equalize in the last seconds, but they had been caught out badly, celebrating too early, at least in their own minds. A few years ago at the Winter Olympics, one of the lady snowboarders was so far in front in her race, you couldn't even see the person who was in second place. The lady in front realized that she'd won, and she decided to celebrate with a stunt on her way to crossing the finish line. Some of you might remember that. It went uh, all over the world. She pulled this stunt only to fall over and get overtaken by the boarders who were behind her. If you go on YouTube, you will find endless examples of people celebrating when they still had work to do and losing out as a result. As we turn to 1 Corinthians this morning, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul telling the Corinthians, you are in danger of making the same mistake. We know from our study of this letter, there are plenty of gifted people in the Corinthian church. We know they have lots of theological knowledge. They're quite proud of that. They know about the forgiveness and the freedom that are available in Jesus. But they are in great danger of celebrating too early. They seem to think they've arrived. But in the passage we're going to read, Paul says to them, don't forget to fight. Not meaning fight with each other. They are doing a bit of that already. But what Paul means is what in another place he calls the good fight. The fight to stay faithful to the very end of our lives. That's what he's talking about. And this challenge doesn't come out of the blue. The previous chapters have given evidence of the danger the Corinthians are in. Back in chapter 4, Paul said to them, you already have all you want. You have begun to reign, at least in your own minds. In chapter 6, Paul quoted one of the Corinthian slogans, I have the right to do anything. In chapter 8, he quoted another one of their strap lines, we all possess knowledge. Now, that's a good thing. We can't be a Christian without knowing certain truths. But in the case of the Corinthians, their knowledge was leading to arrogance. Paul said it was puffing them up. And in chapter 9, he gave more insight into that. He realized they were becoming obsessed with their own rights. Specifically, what they believed was their right to go to pagan temples and eat there in those hot spots of idol worship. How did Paul respond to that? Well, in the passage we looked at last week, he spoke about his willingness to give up his own rights. He was willing to do that because he had a greater priority than his own rights. 
He was willing to forgo his rights for the sake of the gospel of Christ, the good news about Jesus. And in case the Corinthians thought Paul was an unusual Christian, in case they thought his attitude maybe was optional, just for Premier League Christians, Paul clarified his point with a pretty disturbing statement. Right at the end of our passage last week, he said, I'm willing to give up my rights for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So apparently Paul believed that his all-in approach to Christianity was not exceptional at all. Apparently he viewed it as normal Christianity. He couldn't see any other way to follow Jesus. He couldn't see any other way that would lead to the blessings of heaven. Paul realized the Christian life is serious. And we need to take it seriously right to the very end. But as he writes to the Corinthians, he's afraid they have forgotten that. So in this morning's passage, he reminds them and he reminds us, don't forget to fight. If you're still looking the passage up, it's page 1151 in the Green Bibles or page 1780 in the larger print Bibles. 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll read from verse 24 through to chapter 10, verse 13. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge and revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did. And were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, 
If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is God's word. And Paul begins in this passage by telling us we are pursuing a prize. So we need to be serious about self-discipline. There were four major athletics competitions in the ancient world. One of them was the most famous, the Olympic Games. But probably the second most famous at that time was held in Corinth. Every two years, the Isthmian Games in Corinth attracted thousands of visitors to the city to watch those sporting events. So in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, Paul is using illustrations that would have been very familiar to the Corinthians. In their day, athletes were considered to be models of self-discipline. Now, just like today, that didn't mean they lived exemplary lives in every way. But in the area of physical training, they did. They were willing to make sacrifices in the present for the sake of the prize they wanted to win in the future. I remember hearing an interview with a professional cyclist, and he was asked as he came up to retirement what he was looking forward to most when he retired. He said he was going to have a fresh baguette with lots of butter on it. Now, that sounds very strange to us, probably. Such a simple thing. But that athlete had been willing to go without it probably for years. No doubt he went without plenty of other everyday things, all for the sake of the prize he wanted to win. And that is the point of connection Paul wants to make with us. He's calling us as Christians to have the same kind of dedication for the sake of the prize that's ahead of us. And we probably understand this is not a call to give up buttered baguette. It's not about minimizing our body fat. It's about disciplining ourselves in the area of our desires. Being self-controlled, not being ruled by sinful impulses. Being willing to say no to things that might hinder us. Even what we might consider to be little sins. Saying no because we are pursuing something that is eternally valuable. And we know that every sin holds us back, no matter how small it might seem. In verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, don't be like the athlete who thinks they've arrived just because they're in the stadium and on the track. Be like the athlete who does whatever it takes to finish the race well. And just to be clear, Paul is not calling us here to compete against one another, as if only one of us can get the prize. 
That would be pressing the illustration too far. As Christians, the prize is available for all of us. If we take the race seriously, Paul is calling each one of us to go for the prize. So what is the prize he's talking about? Well, verse 25 says, athletes in the games showed self-discipline for a crown that will not last. Historians tell us their prize, their crown, was woven either out of pine branches or celery, believe it or not. But of course, it wasn't really the celery on their head that they were after. What they wanted was what the crown of celery meant. It meant a moment of glory. As the crowds in the stadium rose to their feet, But for those athletes, that glory faded very quickly, just like the salary. Paul reminds us the crown we are pursuing is an eternal one. First Peter calls it the crown of glory that will never fade away. We'll be welcomed into God's presence as honored sons and daughters, and we will share in His reign, the New Testament tells us. It also tells us we will never, ever leave that state of glory. So then, if athletes show single-minded devotion for such a limited prize, surely we are willing to show equal or greater dedication for our eternal prize. The kind of dedication that causes us to show self-control in even the little details of our lives. Choosing to obey and honor God in each one of those details. So in moments of temptation, refusing to give in to disobedience, refusing to give in to pride when that starts to well up in us, refusing to give ourselves to self-promotion, and to bitterness when we have an opportunity for bitterness, and saying no to those sins we're tempted to treat ourselves to. If we're serious about the prize ahead of us, we'll never think of any sin as a treat. We'll never think of any sin as a minor thing. We will see every sin for what it is, a hindrance, a distraction from our goal. Just like that cyclist with a buttered baguette. He wanted it, but he turned his back on it, all for the sake of winning his race. Verse 26, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. Our boys like watching funny videos, and there's a particular funny video they like. Actually, they only know about it because I showed it to them first. It's a sprinter who takes great care about his starting technique, getting out of the blocks when the gun goes off. He's really fixated on getting that moment right. But when the gun actually does go off and he sets off down the track, instead of staying in lane, He zigzags all over the place. He ends up running right off the track eventually. 
He took great care about the start, but then he had no direction at all. He ran fast, all right, but he was running totally aimlessly. He didn't have the finish line in his sights. Paul goes on to mention a boxer who doesn't have a target to hit. He's just flailing punches at the air. Those are ridiculous pictures. But without realizing it, we can be equally ridiculous. We can end up living aimlessly as if we have no target. And that aimlessness can be there even when we're very busy. Even though our lives are maybe filled with activity. We might have lots of goals in our studies and in our career and in our relationships. But if we don't have our sights on our eternal goal, we'll end up living lives that are distracted from what really matters. Wasting our lives chasing after futile things. Just like a boxer swinging at thin air. Dictated to by our sinful desires because we've lost sight of our greatest desire. The desire that got us started on the Christian life in the first place. Meeting our Savior and sharing in His eternal happiness. Paul says, I don't want to get distracted from that. I don't want to live a life that's busy, but aimless. So in verse 27, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now Paul is not against the body. He doesn't think the body is a bad thing. But he doesn't want to be ruled by his body and by its desires. He's determined to rule it. He's determined to devote his body entirely to God's service. He doesn't want to serve sin with any part of his body. And Paul masters his body in that way so that he won't be disqualified from the prize. Isn't that a bit shocking? Does Paul really think he might miss out on heaven if he doesn't live a self-disciplined life? Aren't we saved by God's grace alone? Through faith in Christ alone? Well, yes, we are. Paul himself teaches that over and over in his letters. But Paul also teaches over and over that a true appreciation of God's saving grace in Christ, that will result in a commitment to live for Christ. To press towards the joy of His presence. To turn from the sin that put Him on the cross. The New Testament tells us those who show no enthusiasm to live for Jesus have never truly met Jesus. Because a saving encounter with Jesus will make us serious about pursuing Jesus as our goal. 
It will give us a determination not to be sidetracked as we head towards his presence. And if you or I don't have that determination, well, we have to ask ourselves, where do we really stand with Jesus? In the next section of our passage, Paul makes that point. And he makes it by turning to the Old Testament and telling us, God has shown us his grace is not a license to neglect self-discipline. The Corinthians were people who were big on spiritual experiences. They could talk about powerful things God had done among them. They could point to baptism and the Lord's Supper as evidence God was with them. We've been through the water. We share the bread and wine. God is among us, isn't he? But Paul says, don't be so quick to take your security from experiences. He says, look back at Old Testament Israel, chapter 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. We might look at God's people in the Old Testament and think their experience was very different from ours as the New Testament people of God. But Paul wants us to see, actually, there are very close parallels. In these verses, he's talking about the period beginning with the exodus from Egypt. The Israelites were slaves but they experienced amazing blessing from God. They experienced his presence in powerful ways. God himself led them out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 13 says, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them. Powerful symbol of his presence. And God himself parted the sea so they could pass through and escape Pharaoh's army. And Moses was God's appointed leader who took them across. And then Paul makes his first comparison. You Corinthians like to point to your baptism. That symbol of leaving your old life behind. But he says, weren't those ancient Israelites in a sense baptized too? As they passed through the sea? Wasn't that a powerful symbol of leaving their old life behind? Now they were free people under Moses, God's appointed leader. And then Paul says, you Corinthians are big about the Lord's Supper. You point to that food and drink as evidence that Christ is present among you. You're fellowshipping with him. It's spiritual food in the sense that it's not just bread and wine. The bread and wine are tangible signs of God's presence and provision. They mean something. But didn't the Israelites also have spiritual food and drink? The manna that appeared in the ground, the water that gushed out of the rock, weren't those provided by God? 
Weren't they powerful signs of his presence with them? And then Paul says something that sounds very strange at the end of verse 4. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. What? What does it mean? Well, if we read the Old Testament, there's no indication the Israelites had a magic rock that they carried along with them. Nor was there a magic rock that rolled along beside them. What did happen was that during their journey in various different places, God would lead them to a rock in that place. And from those various rocks, God supplied them with water. So it's as if they were accompanied by a miraculous water-giving rock. But in fact, Paul says, the one who truly went with them was Christ. He was the one supplying them all the way through their journey. The eternal Son of God. Now, we'd love to hear more about that. We'd like to have more details. But Paul simply wants to show us the Old Testament Israelites were more like us than we might have realized. The same Son of God we identify with in baptism and the Lord's Supper today, that same Son of God was upholding and providing for the ancient Israelites in the desert. Their experience of God's power and presence was immense. We cannot say it was second-rate or inferior. And that's what makes verse 5 so terribly shocking. Paul says, nevertheless, in spite of all that, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That is an uncomfortable thing to think about. It's meant to make us uncomfortable. Because it shows us it is possible to be blessed with grace upon grace. And yet fail to receive the prize God has set in front of us. In the case of the Israelites, that prize was Canaan, the promised land. Of the many thousands who experienced the blessings of the Exodus, who received daily provisions from God's goodness, all but two of them failed to reach the promised land. They died in the wilderness. Of the Exodus generation, only Joshua and Caleb arrived in Canaan. And Paul mentions that to warn the Corinthians and to warn us. God's grace is not a license to neglect self-discipline. Look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then Paul gives examples of the evil things the Israelites set their hearts on. He draws on various different events from those wilderness years, times when the Israelites' love of evil things led them to rebel against God and brought His judgment on them. And if we stop to remember the context of this chapter, 
we'll realize the examples are carefully chosen here. Back in chapter 6, we heard about the Corinthians' attitude to sex. They said, we have the right to do anything. Then in chapter 8, we heard about their decision to go to idol temples and eat idol meat because, they said, an idol is nothing at all in the world. But here, in verses 7 and 8, Paul mentions two Old Testament incidents where eating and idol worship and sexual immorality all went together. And the result was death. Then in verses 9 and 10, the focus is on times when Israel grumbled. And that doesn't mean they were sad or depressed. It's not about their emotions, nor is it about one isolated outburst of frustration. This is talking about a settled refusal to trust God. And the result was destruction. The Israelites were not careful about the state of their hearts. They were not serious about the need for self-discipline. And that showed itself in their attitude towards God and in their sinful behavior in various different ways. And all of this for men and women who had experienced big, big things in terms of God's presence and power among them. They stand as a terrible caution to us. Look at verse 11. After listing those Old Testament tragic events of disobedience and judgment, Paul says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm. Be careful that you don't fall. Have you been baptized? Do you gather to share in the Lord's Supper? Very good. But how is your heart? How is my heart? Do we remember that we're called to a fight? Do we remember the biggest battle is in our own heart? Our greatest challenge is the daily commitment to trust and obey our Lord. Are we living like athletes pursuing a prize? Like runners with our eyes on the finish line? Or... Do our lives show we've sort of forgotten about the finish line? Because our focus is on other things. We're consumed by lesser goals that are off to the side a bit from our main goal. Is our eternal focus confined to an hour at church once a week? Maybe two has our focus on meeting Christ shrunk down to that? We just give it a light workout on Sundays just to keep it alive? 
If so, then we need to recommit to a life of self-discipline. Reminding ourselves every day we have a race to run. It requires total commitment from us. And the prize is priceless. We need to remind ourselves of that every day too. It is infinitely worth it to keep saying no to sin, including those little sins or what seem to be little sins. It's infinitely worth it to keep saying yes to God as He calls us to live for His glory in our attitudes, our words, our relationships. And as we listen to this, here is the word of hope that we need as we face this challenge. And maybe as we sense how out of shape we are spiritually, Paul says in verse 13, God is faithful. So there's always a way for us to be faithful. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I think first of all in this verse, Paul is anticipating an objection from the Corinthians. Paul, you don't know how hard it is. Living in the culture we live in. Don't you know, Paul, we are surrounded by sin. It's everywhere. It's in the air that we breathe. We can't walk down the street in Corinth without being bombarded with opportunities for sexual immorality. With invitations to greed and self-promotion. This is Corinth, for goodness sake. Surely, Paul, you're expecting too much of us. Surely faithfulness is just too hard. We sometimes react that way too as we listen to Scripture. Didn't Paul know the kind of culture we live in? How can we be faithful to God in 2019? But Paul says to us what he says to the Corinthians. Temptation may take different forms. It may dress up a bit differently from place to place. But the temptations you and I face are the same ones human beings always face. They are common to mankind. We are not unique. We are not the first to face temptations. Our experience is not new. It is always hard to be faithful. It always requires the commitment of an athlete pursuing a prize. So we cannot excuse ourselves by saying England today is the one place and the one time where it's too hard to be faithful. That's the first thing Paul is aiming to do in verse 13. He is silencing our excuses. But the main thing he wants to do is remind us our God is wonderfully, unfailingly faithful. We can have full confidence He will provide us with a way to be faithful. 
When temptation comes, he will either provide an exit path, a way out of the situation, or he will provide the strength to be faithful to him in the situation. If we go back to those comparisons with the runner and the boxer, however much we get barged and jostled or even tripped in the race, God will always provide a path to the finish line. In every situation, there will be a way to keep the prize in view and move towards it. If you think of the boxer, however many hits we might take, however many times we get knocked down to the canvas, God will provide a way to get back on our feet and make it to the final bell. God is faithful. So whatever our situation, whatever the challenge, whatever the temptation, there will always be a way for us to be faithful. God will never give us an impossible situation. However difficult it is, however dark he will provide a way for us either to endure it faithfully or escape from it. Our part is to trust his faithfulness and remember our calling. To fight to the very end. To run right to the finish line. To refuse to set our heart on evil things. To commit to being faithful even in the little things that seem insignificant. So let's commit to learn from these sad examples that we've read about. Other sad examples we know about. Let's commit to learn from those who gave up the fight. And let's commit to follow the good examples of those who trusted God's character who believed his promises and obeyed his word until they finally received the prize. They arrived in God's presence to share in his glory forever. We're going to close with the final two songs that remind us of our calling and they remind us too of God's faithfulness. Because that is where our hope lies. And I hope we take that away. Our hope does not lie in our strength. It lies in His faithfulness. That's what we rely on. So our first of the last two songs is taking up the readings we've had from Paul, both in Philippians and here. We won't have sung it before, but you'll know the tune. And then we'll finish with all the way my Savior leads me. <laughs>